On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ2 the Deuce. Boy. And looking into his gorgeous face is Mr. Will the Thrill. Greetings and salutations. I glazed over that last week, but seriously, <laughs> does, did, does anybody catch that? You gotta keep doing it. Is it catching that? You know, you you don't want to you don't reveal what that is. I think those in the know will know. I I appreciate it. I will say I appreciate it. So, we did get some really sad news this week. Um, after it seemed like, you know, just two weeks of waiting to hear some news, we did find out that Biz Marquis has passed at the age of fifty-seven. Yeah, he was in the hospital, and there were rumors circulating, but uh, unfortunately, he did succumb to illness, and that's really sad. Unfortunately, there were, you know, rumors of his passing a couple of weeks before it actually happened, and I think his family did announce two or three weeks ago that he was in hospice care, so you unfortunately kind of felt like what happened a few days ago was probably inevitable. Yeah, yeah. and then um, another one that but, we had was uh, Jeff Labar, the, that's right. the guitarist from Cinderella, so... so First of all, Biz is uh, probably best known for one big song, of course, that was a hit in about 1989. He should be remembered for much more than that. He was a really good DJ. He was also part of, as it turns out, one of the landmark musical lawsuits uh, that there's ever been. One yes, of the he was. Most substantial involving Biz Markey and the Turtles. Okay. Which, well, which I mean, we like. I mean, we can laugh because it sounds funny, but it's it's legit. One of the one of the most impactful lawsuits involving music ever. Was that with the Gilbert O'Sullivan? And maybe and maybe uh, was it or was it Gilbert O'Sullivan? I, it was. It was Bismarcky and some. Yeah. Somebody that that whose name makes me kind of chuckle. <laughs> it dealt with samples, and it totally changed how those are credited and how people are supposed to be paid for them and things of that nature so much so that after that lawsuit his next album i think was called all samples cleared <laughs> and uh, as we remember from our series on adam yauk he was first a a detractor and then a collaborator with the beastie boys so yes he was and then uh, i'm going to maintain uh, cinderella does uh, does not belong in the completely vapid hairband category because they actually had some songs that wouldn't didn't really fit that genre oh absolutely the, yeah, the, la the last mile coming home um a couple of other ones they, they actually had some really good kind of soulful almost oddly country tinged songs yeah and i think a lot of people overlooked them i mean that whole album what is it night songs oh night songs great album great album obviously with the uh unmistakable vocals of uh what is it tom Kiefer. tom Kiefer, yes yep and we'll see, going back to Biz Marquis, you guys forget he was in Men in Black 2. The postal guy, right? He was the postal guy in Men in Black 2. And I remember watching that in the theaters, being like, holy crap, that's Biz Marquis. 
He's got other film credits too. I don't know what they're off the top of my head, but I, did, I know he did work as an actor quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, he, he both of them will be missed. And neither was very old either. Viz was, I think, 57? 57, yeah. Yeah. And then the and then the the, the other fellow was what or very early 60s, 60, 60, 61, somewhere in there. Very not not what we would consider old at all. So I mean, our thoughts and our prayers go out to those families. It's I don't like I don't like doing this part. I like talking about like the weird stuff that we're doing. So, you know, if if we could keep other people from passing away, that'd be great. So yeah. and, and we cursed yeah, ourselves in the last yeah, recording. We, we were like, nobody for two weeks, and now Yay. it's getting yeah, heaped on. Now we're back. And also, like, uh, California is in the process of possibly closing down again. So, <laughs> yay for the Delta variant. So, please be careful out there, guys, because it's uh, it's getting crazy. So, how about we jump back in to Dusty Springfield? I think it sounds like a good idea. What do you say, T? Absolutely, Chairman. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so we're actually going to pick this episode up exactly where we left off, pretty much. Uh, Dusty got back to Canada, and she actually ate up a lot of her money. And so she sold her collections of R&B records to musician Graham Nash. Interesting. And then she let her beautiful Jensen Interceptor go. And now... uh, Wait, I'm going to have to uh, call a timeout real quick. What what are the odds that we would get two Graham Nash references in our last three series, n- none of which involved Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young, <laughs> the Hollies, <laughs> the Birds, anybody, in, nothing of the kind. Just yeah, Graham Nash has pop, popped up in two of our last three series. <laughs> Who I think his greatest claim to fame outside of what you just mentioned is his gap between albums. I think he had the record of like 28 years or something. Something like that, yes. Something absurd, yeah. Well, no, he, 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 he magically popped up in our Rick James episode, which was <laughs> seems like the most improbable thing ever. <laughs> and now, now in the Dusty Springfield series. So there yep. you go, kids. Yeah. Now, if you guys are wondering what a Jensen interceptor is, I actually looked it up. It is a car that is, by all accounts, it looks phallic. It looks naughty. But she uh, she actually let that go. So she was seeing everything that she had had worked so hard for slip away. Like she's she's on the verge. She's starting to have to sell stuff. So uh, for a while to make some money, she would appear on stage at gay bars like Probe on La Brea for 500 bucks a night. But her voice was so shocked that she would have to lip sync to some of her hits. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like just to make money, she would just do this circuit. Yeah. So she would look glamorous for about 10 minutes or so. And she would be absolutely adored for about 10 minutes. And it was poignant and sometimes disastrous. Her appearances would be publicized with a runoff handbill that would would circulate around bars. At at this point, it's been it's been quite a while since she had a hit record. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, we're we're several in, in several years into her professional drought. Yes. Yeah. Yes. On a uh, Halloween 1982, she was appearing at a bar on Santa Monica Boulevard, and there had been no publicity other than word of mouth around the gay community, and the whole town of Hollywood turned out in drag and leather. The crush was enormous, and if you guys don't know what a crush is, it's like what happens at stadiums whether it be concert or sports or anything and the crush is what happens with the crowd um and so the crush was enormous and there were some people that were trying to like clear the crowds and so a shot rang out someone fired a gun the crowd scattered incredibly enough dusty was running late and knew nothing about the incident 
And for Dusty, the gay bar circuit was the lowest point in her life. Was was anybody hurt or was it like a shot fired in the air? Or? I think it might have been a shot fired in the air. I I couldn't find a follow up with that, but like no one, I don't think anybody got hurt. It okay. was um, so think, so probably it was somebody fired fired straight up in the air just for the noise to disperse. Yeah, scatter the crowd. Still not still not a great idea or thing to do at a concert, but yeah, but I mean, you know, thank God no one was hurt you know and dusty wasn't even aware that it had, had yeah, happened you said yeah wasn't even aware that it happened so now uh remember her friend suzanne who was the one that found her in that state in the last episode she had moved out of that area and so dusty still loved her but she had to get a new sponsor and her name was peggy peggy was older than dusty and was just super witty and very motherly she called everybody honey or sweetheart mm-hmm. in a really soft voice to everyone, she was a kind but tough, wonderful woman, and a lot of people called her the Steel Magnolia. <laughs> Even though so I, I, was say, I was about to say, so she's from South Carolina, Georgia. <laughs> called everybody sweetheart and honey. <laughs> yeah, and then and motherly. I, I think most Southern women are are, are pretty motherly, and mm-hmm. that's coming from a Southern woman. So fight me. <laughs> um, Peggy was the only person that Dusty ever took real notice of and would help her later get off drinking for good. One night, Fred Perry, who had stayed on in Los Angeles long after Dusty needed him to light her shows, was talking to her on the phone and became concerned about the state that she seemed to be in. So uh, he called up another member of the AA group who went to Dusty's apartment. And in the bedroom, he found Dusty naked on the floor and covered in blood. Jeez. oh gosh so he managed to get dusty onto the bed and he rang peggy and she walked him through everything to do to, to get her into a, a state of being uh he he was like okay you have to get her into her pajamas wash her face wash her arms do it with cold water make a pot of coffee and then just let her sleep it off peggy would come by the first thing in the morning the deck the next day she took dusty off to a mental health clinic and detox center which was actually started by the film star Debbie Reynolds. Hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. So after a 30-day detox, she was taken to a halfway house for women with addiction. And I think it was called The Friendly House. And that was in the summer of 1983, 10 years after she had been to her first AA meeting. And it was the first time that Dusty was actually able to stay sober. Uh, After meeting American actress, and we are just going to go for this name, Tita Bracci, uh, at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting in 1982. They would exchange wedding vows in an unofficial ceremony a year later. Now, is that weird that I just dropped that on you that she just got married? Yeah, and that's in California? Yep. Okay. Yep. Is that weird? Because, yeah, it was weird to everybody else. Well, she she was married previously, no? No, she wasn't. She was not. She had dated Faye for six okay. years, and she she had they, other. They lived and they lived together. Yeah, Faye right, was. Yeah. Faye was even at that night where the gunshot went off. Oh wow! Yeah, so she had. You know, they were still on decent terms, but but yeah, I didn't think it came to a shock as to, to everyone because it was incredibly short notice. Huh. But Dusty found a lovely old white wedding gown at her local thrift shop, and her quote-unquote groom, which is how they wrote it in the book, wore a black velvet suit and a gold waistcoat, which looked stunning with her mass of dark hair. Uh, Her friend Helen had offered her home in Tarzana for the wedding, and everything was laid out on tables and laid out in the garden, and everything was black, including the tablecloths and napkins. Helen was the best lady for Dusty, and the only bad thing that happened during the wedding was that despite a no-alcohol rule, 
somebody had taken a bottle of whiskey and tied it to a window. And so those people less committed to staying sober had been taking secret swigs of it. So they kind of hid it outside the venue, basically? Yeah. They're, oh, jeez. Yeah. So over the next couple of months, the relationship broke down quickly. Both women had violent tippers, and during a particularly violent fight over something as mundane as a catalog, in de- like cataloging Dusty's music, mm. she was hit in the face with a saucepan. Jeez. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. Peta had taken a saucepan and smacked her in the face. It smashed her now her mouth and knocked her teeth out. Wow! This well, was the, see, yeah, that's okay. okay I was, I'll let you finish your sentence, but there's oh, go ahead. An important that's, thing yeah. there. No, I was just going to say, you know, I mean, I know she's already had vocal trouble, but complete, complete dick move to do that for a lot of reasons. One, you've assaulted a person badly yeah. and and hurt them. You've also uh, irreparably changed her voice. Yeah. At that point. Because if you know much about diction and and how how your voice comes to sound the way it sounds, any change essentially from your lungs to the top of your sinuses, any alteration of any kind changes your voice forever. Even if it's slightly, if you have your tonsils taken out, your voice is going to sound different. Yeah. If you you know bite off the, the the tip of your tongue or a chunk of your tongue like Mick Jagger did as, as a, a young man, Whoa. your voice has changed forever. Well, remember, Freddie's voice was attributed to the fact that he had four extra incisors. He had he had a mouthful of teeth, right. Yeah. Well, with, with Dusty, I will tell you, I, I think I get to actually what the long-term effects were in just a second. But okay. basically what happened was this was the only time in her life that Dusty hit someone. Enraged and in pain, she grabbed a skillet and smashed Tita in the head. And she said, um, she she said, if you want to kill yourself, Dusty said, this is the way you do it. She went into the kitchen, came back with a broken cup, slashed her wrists, and then went after Tita, slicing Tita's leg. And then Tita responded by hitting her repeatedly in the head with a boot. Yikes. That day, Dusty fled from the apartment, clutching her mouth, and was admitted to Cedar Sinai Hospital with her face swollen and blackened, and her front teeth missing. And it was a sight that anybody who saw her and knew her just—it would break them down. Her fight that day had serious consequences. So she had to borrow some money, and she hired a cheap plastic surgeon to repair her mouth. The result was that her face looked partially frozen. So it wasn't just that she had lost her teeth it was like she lost some movement in her face she couldn't do that animated smile she couldn't do those like open mouth notes it was partially frozen she lost a lot of her characteristics when it came to her face that and that right and and inability to move your mouth the same way would would again alter your voice yeah which is why and i've been thinking about this a lot lady i know we're going to be playing something i think we're a few years away from it mm-hmm. if you listen to everything we played up to this point and then listen to to that, there's a difference. And I think this may account for it. Yeah. Or have yeah. some something to do with it. There's a lot of factors to consider, but I, I can't, right. there's a lot I of, there's can't a lot say that this is story. a non, did not contribute because this is huge. Yes. Her face would never fully recover. Jeez. Even though Helen had lent her the money to do the plastic surgery, she had actually chosen the cheapest do- job and spent the rest on drugs. Oh, man. Yeah. Wow. 
during this time, she was actually supposed to have a tour in Australia around March and April, which was tied into the release of uh, one of the albums. But it was the album was never released, and the visit was postponed due to quote unquote teeth problems. Hmm. Which that's that's not a lie. No. Yeah. So, if, if if by problems you mean they're not there anymore, that is a problem. Yes. Right. That now, it would be that would be a problem. Now I need to stop here and tell you guys how hard it was to even find a little bit about Dusty's relationship with this woman and that incident. I have pretty much told you everything I could find. There's a little bit in her biography, nothing in the complete Dusty Springfield book, and even a little bit online, which shocked me. And there's no footprint at all on YouTube or Google. It's like they tried to wipe this woman out of existence. Honestly, if you Google her name, you'll find it with Dusty Springfield. And they just, they say that she was like a background actor on, I think like Battlestar Galactica or something. She was in like three episodes of that as really? background. So like I, like, I can't really find a footprint on her. But, but I mean, I understand kind of why she, like most of us in this time could pretty much live in relative obscurity, but she was dating a celebrity. She was married to a celebrity. That you'd still think there would be more available than they met at AA and then they got married and then they had a really bad fight and the yeah. but yeah yeah and then uh, yeah and I and but but the thing that that you need to take away with this was remember I told you last episode Dusty never hurt anybody she yeah. would only hurt herself like she would take all of her anger out on herself that's why she was cutting and 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 yeah. you know abusing pills and alcohol and things like that which was what ended up right what ended up in AA for hmm. but this was the first time that she had lashed out and think about it, like that's the first time that she's had physical violence since she was a child from wow. what we know and you know, I mean, you know I'm just gonna say if she came swinging at this chick with a skillet and the the lady was able to you know respond by hitting her with a boot it obviously wasn't a cast iron skillet because that would that would have laid her ass out. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. I mean, have you, have you ever tried to just handle one of those things? I mean, they're heavy as crap. Yes, they oh, are. Yeah. yeah, and nine times out of ten, they still have hot oil in them, even if they're in the drawer. Somehow, they've been in the drawer six months. They still have hot sizzling grease in them. I don't know how that works. <laughs> yeah, so... You know, moving away from something that was really just the hardest stuff I think I've had to write in a while. Uh, let's talk about 1983. In the last weeks of 1983, Dusty recorded Private Number with Spencer Davis. And in March of 1984, that song was released in the UK. So let's take a little bit of a break and listen to Private Number.
we're back. Alrighty. Thoughts? The voice is still there. It just the only word I can describe it is as clipped. It's like you took the original and just cut something out of it. There's a, a character or a timber that that had been there in every song that you played up to now, and it's gone. Yeah. Um. You can still tell it's her, but the I mean, and, and it's not the range or anything. There's just there's a, there's something missing from her voice there that had been present previously. And for you, Will, I I have to agree. And like I said, it feels like something just taken away and undoubtedly due to what she suffered the injuries would change the the airflow the vibration i mean all of those factors would change someone's voice so it stands to reason yeah and then and then she was already and she was battling voice issues before she got her teeth knocked out oh and uh i was going to mention this a little bit later but i guess now is an okay time to pull it up when i was uh, i had finished reading dances with demons from vicky Vicky actually stated that she thought that most of Dusty's vocal stuff was psychosomatic, which is something hmm. that we, I had actually cut out of the episode because I didn't want to speculate, but uh, Vicky seemed to have thought that herself. So but th- is that, is that, that, but that's, a, did, did that not afflict uh, Meatloaf at one time? Oh yeah. 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 That he lost his voice, but it was, it was entirely uh, mental in some way. I feel like that's or emotional. There was something. Like there was right. nothing actually wrong with his voice. I feel like, but he couldn't sing. Yeah, I, I, I want to say per is behind the music anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, like I think behind the music is a pretty good state because they have like all the different people in that person's life. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the person come in and talk about that. So I think like if yeah. So if it said it on Meatloaf's thing, I'm pretty sure it actually happened to Meatloaf. Yeah. But you can do things like go hysterically blind. Yes, you can. You know, it's yeah. just, it's all, it, that happened to a lot of people in war. Uh, you know, it, it happens if you have something traumatic happen, it just shuts off, you know, and she's full of self-doubt and worry and everything. So I could see why that would happen to her. I could see what would happen because of that. So, so also in 1984, Dusty would stay with Helen more and more, and she would make a weekly trip out to see her one-time partner who was now in the Chino's women prison outside of los angeles now going back to that thing of there's not a lot online i actually tried to look up why she was in prison couldn't figure it out i did find out though something uh very interesting her birthday is the day after mine tita's yeah tita's tita's birthday is the day after mine she does still have a twitter but it's not really it's usually just like retweets or video clips of dusty springfield's music and i don't think she's posted since like 2012 wow so her presence online is not very strong. And as she does have a wiki page of like the things that she had done as an actress. So, uh, but I, but the, the reason why Dusty had been okay with going out there was that she'd been out of the spotlight for so long that nobody knew who she was when she turned up for prison visits. Hmm. The only time yeah. that she was actually recognized in the street was when she and Helen ran into a party of British tourists doing the Hollywood Homes tour. That was the only time anybody was like, oh, hey, you're Dusty Springfield. That goes back to the 80s, the Hollywood Homes Tour? Oh, I guess geez. so. I guess so. There are a few other reasons for her to make uh, regular prison visits, but the main one was practical. As a non-American, she needed a signature for food stamps. And so she was now on a diet and on welfare. Oh, yikes. These days, she was a long way from the house with the swimming pool. And instead, she inhabited a series of seedy motels with cooking facilities in and around the streets of Hollywood and Vine. Oh, and at that point, that was a rough yeah, was area. A rough, wow, rough yeah. And and what a fall. 
Yeah. yeah. In that summer, she celebrated 11 months of being sober. Despite everything that had happened to her, and although she had been having the odd slip now and then, uh, mostly right after that attack, Dusty was now pretty much only hooked on Diet Coke, cigarettes, and her pills. And the pills themselves were a problem. She had decided that she wanted to appear at a charity event for the Friendly House, which was the halfway house that she was in. And she was not ready to perform at all. Her appearance was to be the most bizarre she had ever made. A few phrases into the first song, her voice collapsed under the weight of her drugs, and she left the stage, returning a couple minutes later with a Hoover, the vacuum. Yep. Huh? To the audience's astonishment, she plugged the she plugged the vacuum in, hummed to herself, started the vacuum up, cleaned the stage, turned the vacuum off, wrapped the cord around the little wire things, and then left. Wow. That was the whole performance. So, I mean, um, I mean, I'm not even being funny. Was this some kind of like performance art or just a uh, weird thing? I think it was just a weird thing. Okay. I, yeah, I, I think it was just weird. I mean, I don't like, I, like you, you tell me that and I'm like, yeah, you know, if Frank Zappa did that, then it was probably performance art, you know? Yeah. It, it, there was some kind of uh, meaning to it, but uh, probably in this case, I guess not, but. No, certainly not. Wow. You said pills. Are these like prescribed medicine pills i don't actually know okay i don't know i think she's because still doing the quaaludes and the the uh, mandrax and stuff like that it sure seems like at about this time especially you would hear lots of stories about well you know such and such uh, got off cocaine but then they got hooked on the pills that, that their doctor gave them well yeah like this was a fairly common thing and not just in the 80s but it's up forward many years forward Oh, no, we're still dealing with it now. There is a massive opioid epidemic in America. Oh, sure, sure. Because they're completely acceptable. Like, you're oh, like, oh, the doctor prescribes this for me to get through my daily life. And what's the one you said is like 10 times stronger than morphine? What was the name of it? That's killing people? Phenyl? Phenyl. It was the same thing you know that killed about, right? Michelle McNamara yes. and someone else that we had just talked about. But was it phenylbarbital? I can't not, remember. I can't remember, it's but it was- 10 times as strong as morphine, yeah. which is scary. Yeah. So, you know, it's there's there's a lot happening. So she's still dealing with the pills. She's, as far as I know, dealing with cocaine. I, I, I haven't heard any point where she gets off of it, but at least she's trying to stay off the drink, mm. which is, you know, partially- Which is good, but then I do have to ask this question. If she's on food stamps, how can she afford cocaine? That's a good question. I think also maybe it's just her personality can get it. I don't know. Because we, because, you know, we, we um, pondered this during our, you know, the Rick James uh, series because he did a thousand dollars of blow a day at one point. And then we just thought like, gosh, how much of that? So I actually look, I actually read some stories. Apparently at one point in the eighties or early to mid eighties, Coke was really expensive. And then it got really cheap after that. (laughs) Um, I guess is just supply and demand. I mean, the the, le- the lessons you learned in your economics class apply even to the black market, as it turns out. Hey, LD, just stopping for a second. We got to take a short break for our sponsors here. All right, and we are back. All right, let's jump back into Dusty. Just because you're on food steps doesn't mean you don't have any money coming in. Sure. Though so she could have been using the food stamps for food and then the cash for drops. Yes, she could be performing in a bar. Especially, right. Right, especially if you're you're being paid in cash. Now, please, guys, understand this is all speculation. Mm-hmm. We do not know. We don't claim to know. You know, again, we are just speculating. Correct. So please don't get angry with us. Um, so 
by the end of 1984, by the end of 1984, Dusty started running out of everything. And the big thing she started running out of was patience for living in America. 12 years and a lifetime of experiences. There were no record companies that were left that, that were interested in signing her. She was an incredible talent, but impossible to work with. She was expensive and she wasn't selling records. And, so, and, and had burned had burned lots of bridges from what you told us earlier in the series in terms of going through a bunch of different labels and managers. Yeah. And that's the thing. At some point, I just stopped naming them all <laughs> because uh, let me let me find this statistic. And I, I want to say you told us that she was she had something like was it eight different labels or 10? It was it was an obscene sounding number, which would feed the idea that hey, you're you're mercurial, you're hard to work with. You go to this place, you burn a bridge, you jump to the next one. You know what I mean? That 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 just kind of feeds what you just kind of laid out there. Yeah. So here's the here is the stat. Dusty Springfield recorded over 280 songs during a solo career that lasted almost 36 years. And in those 36 years, she managed to work her way through a fair amount of record companies, four in the UK and seven in the United States. So 11. Yes. 11 different record companies. Yeah. Wow. So, and that was 36 years. 11 and 36 years? Let's, let me see what the average. And, but, well, 11 and 36 years, which is about three, one every 3.3 years and two or three months. Yeah. But there's also a big swath of time where she's not really recording very much. Or, or represented, for that matter. Or represented. So, if you condense it, really, it's probably 11 labels in about, I'm doing this in my head, 18 years, really? Yeah her prime uh, output creatively because we just played a song of her with Spencer Davis from you know the early mid 80s and it was really the first song we've heard from her in about 10 years yeah am I wrong yeah no I think I yeah. think math adds up but so uh, really re really it's probably about 11 record labels in 18 19 20 years which is still it's crazy short amount of time yeah yeah but the, but the it's, it's, it's a lot of labels and not much time <laughs> that's the best way to put it yes so she also felt like she was alienating her friends and only a couple of them would stick around so with no job prospects no friends no record labels she started looking at england again so on october on october 17th 1984 dusty was the guest star on the Anne murray special at the royal albert hall She's saying, you don't have to say you love me instead of a preacher man, the latter with Anne Murray. During this performance, Dusty's earring flew off, and so they had to do it over again. However, neither attempt was included on the broadcast version of the show. Neither was included on the broadcast version of the show. So even when she did something massive like that, didn't even make it to air. Oh, wow. Now, there is a bright spot, it seems, in 1984. She actually attended a fan convention held at the Entertainer Pub in London. So I think at least with that, she felt like someone was still listening to her. Someone was still there for her. So here's where, for me, it gets a little bit bananas. Okay. Oh, we haven't reached bananas yet. Really? I mean, we've hit, we've hit plantains. We haven't okay. pulled bananas yet because in 1985 at the star bar at the Hippodrome club, Dusty was faced with something that resembled a circus. There's a line of dusty lookalikes, and they were all transvestites in blonde wigs, false eyelashes, wearing glittery dresses. There was like a 300-pound tattooed man. And then there was, she said, there was a term for the, like, 
vertically challenged individuals. So I think she was talking about little people. Mm. I would think so, so yes. Yeah, so, so the, the, these people were all out in force. This was supposed to be Dusty's big return. It was the first time she'd been with a British artist in a really long time. And she had had a new single called Butterflies. And that was with singer Kim Wilde and Jim Diamond and a massive oh, wow. orchestra decked out in a Busby Berkeley style <laughs> arrangement with, with white tuxedos. And Dusty was to be the star that was performing live at the Hippodrome. And that was an evening brought to you by Peter Stringfellow. It was Hippodrome's record label and it was supposed to be taped by the BBC. So this was this massive event. Dusty was supposed to be coming back. It was being filmed for the BBC. It was a massive thing brought to you by Peter Stringfellow. Now, who is Peter Stringfellow, mm -hmm. you might ask? Well, he kind of molded himself as the British Hugh Hefner. He would surround himself with scantily clad women wearing, you know, just the bare minimum. And they were, you know, big bubble blondes. And the thing is, he wasn't Hugh Hefner. <laughs> he did not have the the wear for all or the charm or the clout that Hugh had. Mm. So a lot of people actually couldn't understand why Dusty signed up with him. But the thing is, of course, she was desperate for money and he yeah. had a lot of enthusiasm and he was excited about having her on. Just as a side note, uh, he would also open up a lap dance club in the remnants of the old fashion cafe and he called it the Passion Cafe. That was the year 2000. So the event that he put together was pretty tacky. And I'm, I'm just, you know what? If you get mad at me for saying that, I'm sorry. It sounds tacky. It does, yeah. So one funny side note about the place where the Hippodrome was. It was actually the site of the old talk of the town. Oh, wow. So you guys remember the talk of the town, remember? So it was a homecoming then. S sort of. Yeah. At the same place that, you know, Dusty had had that disastrous like she had the whole season set out one bad night doctor asks for three days of rest and they fire her okay. so so I guess when she said that she would never play the talk of the town she was only kind of half right because she would play at the venue that was the talk of the town just not the talk of the town so we'll never know if she felt a hint of nostalgia when she was standing on that stage but then her co-star Fanny the trained dog peed on a wall and I assume that she was probably snapped back to reality <laughs> <laughs> Sammy the dog. Fanny, Fanny was her. Fanny. Sam, Sammy the dog was her co. Her what? Open It's Fanny. Like I sat on my Fanny. Fanny. I'm sorry. I, I misheard you. Okay. So Fanny the dog um, was her opening act. Or <laughs> I don't know in what. So like so I mean honestly so I mean she's almost being paired with like David Letterman's stupid pet tricks at this point this is where we are sadly yes yes yeah. yes so it's important to remember that dusty at this time was still dealing with that 1980s drug but it's not the one that you're thinking of it's actually xanax so at mm. this point she is she's on xanax oddly enough this has the opposite effect of calming one nerves it would it would make her extremely agitated and anxious now, it's about this time that someone named Jenny Cohen stepped in to help Dusty and basically hold her hand in London. And Jenny was an American from New York. So uh, Jenny kind of got the, the job of hand-holding and helping Dusty out, sort of kind of what Pat was doing, 
in the old days, uh, you know, helping her out in any way. But Jenny negotiated a deal for Dusty featuring a TV advertisement for a, a soft drink company singing I Only Want to Be With You. This is the first advertisement Dusty had appeared in since she sang that manic mother's pride <laughs> bread commercial. I think it's that so is, surreal. Did you actually watch the, the commercial, T? I don't think I actually watched it, but hearing it was just magic enough. I... <laughs> yeah. So they actually license out. So they license out her image and her song for this commercial. So guess what that got her? A pretty darn good commercial deal. Dang. And because of that, Jenny, and in some part, you know, due to Stringfellow, she was actually having money come in. Jenny sent out a massive demos from America, and she was completely shattered when Dusty told her that she wanted to record the song Something Like Butterflies. And she said, Dusty, that was the Donna Summer B-side, for Christ's sake. Mm. Dusty insisted she loved the song, and that was going to be her single from Hippodrome. I would like to tell you that the recording session went well, mm. but sadly, Dusty because she had not been in the studio for a really long time and she was still dealing with all the, the other stuff in her life. And Peter knew absolutely nothing about the music industry. It is seriously, it's a wonder that they got anything on tape at all. I mean, it was, it was bad. And so back in her dressing room one night, she was treated with a full room of flowers that were from fans and friends and even a bouquet from the house of Lords. And the evening was being treated as sort of a homecoming for Dusty, and she was a ball of nerves. So, of course, what happened? Things went flying. Mm. So, Jenny walked in and just simply looked at Dusty and said, having fun, are we? Dusty paused for a second and began to laugh. Actual, real laughter. So, she had prepped for the Hippodrome, by dyeing her hair purple and wearing a silver suit, the result horrified Jenny. <laughs> and it was to be described in newspapers like Dusty looking like something left over from the NASA space probe. <laughs> and I would love to tell you that the show went well, but literally everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong. Jenny had laid like day glow tape on the floor so Dusty could see the shining. Mm -hmm because you know she's still extremely short-sighted. And so she was on her way to the stage and the cameras were following her because remember the BBC is filming this. So as she's walking up the steps, cameras following her, uh, she catches her toe on the, the tape and goes flying. On a piece of tape? Yes. Yeah, on a piece of tape? Yeah. yeah. How do you trip over tape? Well, I think that it was like maybe carpeted and then she just caught her foot on the thing and it got stuck. Ugh. yeah i'm also like grip tape is completely different than like scotch tape or duct tape like it's it's a different kind of tape so this is like gorilla tape yeah i think so or something it, okay yeah, it, it, yeah. it had to be it had to be something because she she caught her foot in it and she fell over Ugh. yeah so that made her super edgy and just when dusty was about to start singing jenny caught a flash of gold lame whizzing past her it was a roller skating person of restricted growth making for the stage. What? Knowing that this would be the final straw for Dusty, Jenny threw herself out in front of the little person, stopping him. He goes flying. 
she breaks her heel. Oh, God. I guess the Dusty's vocals were shot. So when they saw the playback, Jenny's worst fears were concerned. Were- so this is like this is like a roller derby is sponsored by P.T. Barnum. Yes. It's like a yes. it's like a weird Fellini movie happening. So yeah. strange. Yes. Very very much so. Or it's or it's like it's like unseen cut footage from an early Van Halen video. Right. <laughs> I mean, I'm, this is something have, David Lee Roth conceived. Yeah. I, well, like she has like a dog that's pissing on a wall, and then like a little person on roller skates <laughs> that's trying to like fly. In, in on go- I'm sorry. Excuse me. In gold Lemay. In gold Lemay. Yes. And she's dressed like an alien. Yes. Yeah. With her purple hair and silver dress, like. But there is apparently video footage of that, and so Jenny went back and watched the footage and so she went to Stringfellow and was like hey can we re-record these vocals because we can pre-lay those down like we, we can we can go back and post and kind of loop those and it was agreed that Peter would pay for the session that the BBC could use to you know kind of lay over the tape so they would hold up on releasing it and then they would add the tracks later and then Dusty so Jenny called up Dusty and Dusty picked up the phone and she's like you know conversation ensues and she's like let's lay these down she's like that's great i have laryngitis oh my so dusty now has laryngitis and cannot redo the vocals i'm sorry but that whole story is between that and the vacuuming story yeah i'm like she's she's on her way to andy kaufman land yeah she's she's checked out i mean yeah wow but uh so (laughs) at what what point do we have a a person suffering from giganticism being spanked with a salmon that seems about the only thing we lack that's 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 probably going to be in the next episode okay great i'm super looking forward to that so i want to take a second to listen to dusty's version of something like butterflies because i feel like after that story we need Okay, well, real, okay, real quick. Are we listening? Is this studio version or is this live or what are we about I, here? I, I chose, I think, the studio version of this song. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. All right. So here is Dusty's version of something like Butterflies.
that song reminds me, if you remember during like the 80s and 90s when they would play an action movie on network TV and they'd cut it to hell. And then at the very end, they'd show the credits at like double speed so they could get to the nightly news. I feel like that song would be playing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that is probably one of the most accurate. Her, her voice is pretty stripped there. Yeah, but even though Dusty's voice is stripped, as you called it, still sounds better than some of our singers we have today. Oh, oh, and in, in real life, actual how their vocals really sound for sure. Oh. But when you, you think of how magnificent and powerful and different her voice was in there, it's almost like she's try, she's singing in a whisper, sort of. Yeah. Or something. It's yeah, it's it's there's there's just a lot of character missing from what we heard in the first three episodes vocally yeah and in uh 1985 basically going er against everything that Stringfellow had pushed her to do she went on very few interviews to promote the song and refused to do any of the things that he had tried to set up for her so she would mainly hang out in Hampstead with a string of American girlfriends who would come and visit and then she would also be in unfortunately psychiatric wards at various London hospitals the one place that Dusty was really happy was at her friend Debbie Daniels' house. Debbie was Dusty's hairdresser for over 10 years, and Dusty adored her. Seemed like the friendship that she needed. They would do things like watch American football at Wembley Stadium, or she would just, she was a notoriously terrible sleeper. <laughs> and she could go to Debbie's couch and pass out a couple hours later, and then Debbie would run and grab McDonald's, French fries, and a Big Mac, and they would spend the evening, like, just hanging out and talking and doing ordinary things like, you know, actual friends would do with you. So it seemed like Debbie was like a really good person in her life. In September of 85, she appeared on an open air live TV show in Berlin, which included, among other guests, Angie Bowie and Vidal Sassoon. And me and Will have been in a room with one of those people. Uh, yes, yes, we have. <laughs> And that was probably my most embarrassing celebrity <laughs> meeting of all time. Yes, yes, it was. But it wasn't Vidal Sassoon that we met. I met Angela Lansbury and then just made a jerk out of myself because I did not make any words that were real come out of my face. But Vidal was in the theater, right? Vidal was in yeah. the theater and I felt like he was silently judging my hair. <laughs> like, that's okay. I have notoriously terrible hair, so I don't even care. But on September 20th, 1985, Dusty left for New York where she hoped to record with a band called The System and possibly meet with three producers, one that might have been Nick Martinelli. However, his secretary stated in a fan club letter that it proved to be impossible to get together the musicians, the producers, and the studio all at the same time. And so those recordings never actually took place. Mm. Flashing forward to one of the most notable things that happened in 1986 was Dusty recorded Something in Your Eyes over several sessions with Richard Carpenter. That's crazy. I should note at this point, Karen had already passed because she had passed in 1983. And uh, if you are interested, we did do, I believe, a three-part, two or three-part series on Karen Carpenter very mm -hmm. early in the podcast, back when it was still me and the original TJ. So if you're interested, you can go check that out. But I really, but, really- well, Interesting that because you have compared her voice or, or Will has one, to Karen Carpenter. Yes, I have. Yes, yeah. I, yes. We, both, we both have because yeah. I said that she had a purity that Karen had and I didn't realize that those two worlds collided. So I really want to play this for you because number one, it's really, really pretty, but also 
it's really interesting to hear the dynamic that those two have together. So he's doing the piano. He wrote it and he arranged the song. So, so Richard did uh, that back part. She's doing the vocals and he's doing backing vocals too. So I'm going to play that for you guys now. This is Dusty Springfield and Richard Carpenter with Something in Your Eyes.
we're back. Now that that song could only live in the seventies and the eighties. It almost sounds like a benefit song, doesn't it? Kind of. The orchestration and the and I don't know what's going on with that video. There's one scene where it's like the two of them on a piano in an empty Studio City apartment. I don't know what was going on there. <laughs> that's 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 the minimalistic approach to uh, music videos. Uh, it, at the time, yeah. No, I can show you Rosanna Pansini doing All I Ask of You huh. in a loft with nothing but like four candles and a piano. Sure. With Sam Chu. So hmm. uh, yeah, it's a cheap music video. Got it. Okay. So let's jump back to 1984. Well, let, let's also let's also focus for a second on a. The two of you compared um, Dusty to Karen Carpenter for a long time. That's where I finally heard it. Mm. Yeah. Um, oddly, when she's paired with uh, Karen's brother, there was a quality. Her voice sounded a little better there than the previous song or two that you had played for us. It sounded. Um, there's a quality that Karen had where her voice was, she had a, 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 a nice sounding lower end of the register, but there was a quality about it that it was deep, but it was also kind of gritty. Yeah. If that makes sense. And that's what Dusty just had going, right? Right. And the song that you just played. Yeah. And honestly, I think it's beautiful. I think it's a beautiful song that she had. I think, you know, it's, it's one of those songs that, you can hear it and it invokes an emotion mm. like son of a preacher man i only want to be with you you don't have to say you love me her earlier stuff not to stick her in the past again but like i think when she does these songs that have an emotional response to them she really digs in and finds that emotion and it's not something like tangible that i can explain like oh she does this it's not something i can point to that she does with her voice but she feels like it feels like when you're listening to a Dusty Springfield song, she's connecting with it on a, a different plane than a lot of people mm -hmm. connect with their music. So moving on from that, we're going to actually jump back to 1984. And I'm actually going to have Will the Thrill read this because I feel like it won't sound good in my voice. But I want to do a firsthand account from Neil Tennant, how things went down. So I'm going to turn it over to Mr. Will the Thrill to read this part. So tonight, the role of Neil Tennant will be played by... William. Yes. Hickey. All right. So <clears throat> picture this. No, no, no. It's a first-hand account. You just read it straight. Okay. I was doing a little Rod no, Serling, but... Don't, you don't right. get to do Rod Serling. No, this, is, this is a direct quote. <sighs> and don't do a weird accent like my brother would. In a world. No, there's no in a world. In a time. There's no time. <laughs> okay. I, I Get out of the booth. <laughs> I like it here. <laughs> All right. Just before Christmas, 1984, Chris Lowe and I, otherwise known as the Pet Shop Boys, spent a couple of days writing and then recording a demo of a new song, a duet called What Have I Done to Deserve This? Look, columnist Philip Norman will be relieved to learn that this process involved sustained concentration, considerable hard work, and much fun. According to his feature of three weeks ago, he is under the impression that pop songs nowadays are written by computers. Working with us was an American songwriter called Allie Willis, a successful one, with hits to her credit such as Boogie Wonderland for Earth, Wind & Fire. Oh. A year later, West End Girls had given us our first hit and we were beginning to record our debut LP with producer Stephen Haig. What planned to include, what have I done to deserve this, but it presented us with a problem. 
who would we get to sing the other half of the duet for the real thing? Notable female contemporaries were suggested, but none sounded right. We wanted a woman with a voice suggesting both experience and vulnerability, warmth, but also a tough take it or leave it attitude. The song is neither teenage romance nor nostalgia, but a dialogue about the end of an affair between two adults. Nikki, our manager's assistant, had a bright idea. What about Dusty Springfield? I thought she was your favorite singer. In interviews, I'd occasionally named Dusty in Memphis, a 1968 album, as my favorite LP. It's the album which best captures her heartbreaking voice within a soul context. Jerry Wexler, Aretha Franklin's producer, supervised the session, and it established Dusty as the only authentic white female soul singer of the era. Before this album, she had a string of pop hits. I only want to be with you. I just don't know what to do with myself. You don't have to say you love me. I close my eyes and count to 10. Her breathy, glamorous voice was always thrilling, even when the 60s pop industry tried to cram her into a conventional show business cabaret career alongside Cilla Black, Lulu, and Anita Harris. And like every great pop singer, she had more than a great voice. She had a look, a blonde bouffant hairdo, the black eye makeup, acres of it. Since Dusty in Memphis and its hit single, Son of a Preacher Man, her career seemed to tail off. She made a few albums in the 70s and moved to America. She wasn't forgotten, of course. Elton John still eulogized about her, so did Elvis Costello. But her latest album wasn't even released in Britain, although it included an Elvis Costello song. An abortive contract a couple of years ago with Peter Stringfellow's Hippodrome label produced just one disappointing single, sometimes like butterflies. By 1985, Dusty Springfield was merely a legend. Rumor had it that she was a recluse in Los Angeles surrounded by cats and impossible to work with. She'll never agree to do it was our first reaction to Nikki's suggestion. But let's try it anyway. A tape of the song was dispatched to her manager in the States. The answer came back weeks later. No, she's not interested. The song was not included on our first LP. Now, they, they'd gone to all these different people to get like an opinion on whether or not to hire Dusty. And then Jerry Wexler was like, oh my God, seriously, she is the most difficult <laughs> person on the planet to work with. So, you know, despite everything, they did try to reach out to Dusty. Now, that is, that is Neil Tennant's side of the story, mm. okay? On Dusty's side of the conversation, she was like, who are the Pet Shop Boys? <laughs> And Vicky said, oh, the, you know, the song West End Girls. Mm -hmm. And Dusty was like, oh, yeah, I like that song. Vicky said that the two lads, she was like, I, I think they're gay. She said the Pet Shop Boys were gay? Yeah. And she's like, you know, Ollie only writes great songs and she's lovely. So why don't you just listen to the song and see what you think? Dusty finally listened to the track as soon as it arrived. And she said, yes. So we've got two different sides of the story. So I don't know if she initially had said no and then said yes, or if she just said yes right away. Mm. But those are the two sides. I just wanted to present it to you guys and let you know how it went down, possibly. Okay, mm. so she had an interesting take on the recording session. She didn't feel any responsibility. She, it was like it had nothing to do with her. All of the decisions were taken out of her hands and she was like relieved. Mm. Uh, this was Tenant Lowe's project. And if it failed, so what? she was pretty used to that so like whether or not this was okay was like meh she wasn't even worried about it so i think that, that she actually had the ability to relax and be happy about it 
Although she did fret over the way that she was looking in the video for the single because, you know, she was older and she was a little bit heavier in her opinion. But she actually preferred that it was a music video over just pictures because you can't hit a moving target, is what she said. <laughs> That's kind of funny. So Dusty went to Tenet and was like, hey, Tenet, low. You think this is going to make a number one song? And then she was like, you know, I've actually only had one number one song my whole life. And then she apparently boxed uh, low in the head when he cheekily pointed out that the Pet Shop Boys had two number one hits. Back in Los Angeles in September, What Have I Done to Deserve This was giving her the second biggest hit of her career. <laughs> Getting to number two in both British and American charts, suddenly things were looking up the way that she could not have foreseen even six months previously. So let's listen to that incredible song. This is What Have I Done to Deserve This?
And we're back. All right. I mean, that song is just classic. It really is. It's great. It, uh, you can't really, her vocals are on point. It's almost like the minute that somebody took all the responsibility out of her hands for what seems to be like the first time in her life, she relaxed and she was able to vocally hit everything she needed. It's, it's a little different when your picture's not on the front of the sleeve, as right. they used to say. Yeah. Um, and, and it is because it's, it's almost like magically your voice sounds great again. And I don't know what happened, but I, like you said, it was more psychosomatic than I think it was vocal cord issues or anything else. Correct. Perhaps. Yeah. And we did look it up because you noted that it hit number two in the UK and the United States. Yeah. It, it was kept out of number one in the United States by Seasons Changed by Expose and George Michael's father figure. And it was one of those I can understand. <laughs> yeah, right. One of those I get, and the other one is curious. <laughs> in the UK, it was kept out of number one by Rick Astley. Yeah. Never going to give you up. But again, if you're going to get dethroned, you might as well get Rickrolled as well. You may as well get Rickrolled in the process, sure. I don't I don't know what what you guys mean by Rickrolling, but uh what? Oh, oh there it is. Hell. Ladies and gentlemen, our federally mandated Rick Rowling <laughs> of the podcast has been has satisfied. Been satisfied. <laughs> uh, it never gets old. No, nothing beats what the San Diego uh, Padres did to the Boston Red Sox, though. That was amazing. All right. So, um, so Dusty's really enjoying kind of this new renaissance. So after this comes out, Tennant calls Vicky, who's acting as Dusty's manager at this point, because he's been asked to write the theme song for a film being made about the Perfumo scandal, and they wanted Dusty to perform it. Side note, if you guys don't know, the Perfumo affair was a major scandal in the 20th century British politics arena. Hmm. John uh, Porfumo, I think that's how you say it, Perfumo? Porfumo. We're going to go with Profumo. The Secretary of State for War and the uh, conservative government, he had had an external affair with a 19-year-old model named Christine Keller in 1961. He denied the affair in a statement to the House of Commons, but weeks later, a police investigation exposed the truth, uh, proving that he had lied in the House of Commons. Ooh. It damaged the credibility of uh, McMillan's government, and McMillan resigned as prime minister in October of 1963, citing, quote, unquote, ill health. Ultimately, the fallout contributed to the conservative government's defeat by the Labor Party in the 64 general election. So I did not have sex with that woman. There you go. Okay. All right. Again, I'm so sorry to our <laughs> listeners that are in Britain. Both of them, and they just tuned out. My brother yeah. is extremely intoxicated, as he usually <laughs> is, and, and makes poor decisions all the time, regardless. I did not have an inappropriate relationship with Miss Lewinsky. What? <laughs> sorry. What? Go ahead. What's going on there? Are you okay, T? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm good. All right. So this this was a perfect match, of course, because Dusty was a 60s icon singing about a 1960s scandal that rocked British government. That track was Nothing Has Been Proved. That gave Dusty another top five hit and put her back in the headlines. She had made a decision. From now on, her destiny was to be in Britain. And the closest that she could get with the cats from America was Holland. And I, I try to figure this out. Okay, so there is a, apparently when you're bringing 
animals into countries, there is a quarantine yeah. time. So, so like they have to be placed in a, a quarantine home. Yeah, and for some countries, it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. so, but D- Dusty had friends in Amsterdam and she could fly to London from there, which was less than an hour. And Dutch had no, the Dutch had no quarantine loss. So she could pack up her stuff from Los Angeles, grab the cats, and she moved to Holland. (laughs) In early 1988, although extremely ill with a respiratory infection, she performed a concert at the Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles to benefit Venice House, a small facility for recovering alcoholics. Oh, nice. In February of 1988, she appeared with the Pet Shop Boys at the BPI Music Awards and mimes, what have I done to deserve this? Now, in April of 89, on the 16th, it was Dusty's 50th birthday. She spent it rather quietly toasting with a Diet Coke and two of her friends. Mm -hmm. Flashing all the way to 1989 in October, Dusty was back in the studio with the Pet Shop Boys to record a track called I Want to Stay Here, Occupy Your Mind, and Daydreaming. So she recorded a couple of those tracks. She decided in the end that it was time for her to get back into the studio, and what resulted was Reputation. Reputation was the 13th studio album. And it was the 12th that had been released. It was issued on Parlophone Records in the UK and the rest of Europe. And in June of 1990, Reputation was not only Springfield's first studio album in eight years at the time, but it was also her first album to be released in her native UK since the 1979's Living Without Your Love album. That was the last one in the UK? Yeah. After a string of commercially overlooked albums through the late 70s and early 1980s, Reputation finally managed to resurrect Springfield's career and belatedly resulted in her being re-evaluated and recognized by both music critics and the general public as UK's foremost blue-eyed soul singer. Mainly produced by the Pet Shop Boys and Julian Mendelssohn and recorded in the UK over a period of some 18 months, Reputation became her highest charting and best-selling album in the UK since 1970s from Dusty With Love, peaking at number 18 and selling 60 thousand copies within two weeks of its release oh wow so in some not so fun news in 1991 there are press press reports that dusty is to sue comedian bobby darvo for portraying her on his tv show as an alcoholic she accepts an out-of-court libel settlement for his impersonation you can sue for that i thought that would fall under fair act and wow well, the I mean, laws may I mean, be I'm not saying the laws, I the laws may be different in the UK than they are here. That's true. Yeah, I'm not saying I condone it. I'm just saying over here, if you do that, I think you are impugned because it's parody or it's it's it can be considered parody or, or whatever, right. which is protected free speech. Correct. But but there might have be. Well, remember, guys, there's there's a huge thing in Britain about libel. It's true because. The, the Diana had to go through that and there are there are people like it's dealt with a lot with the paparazzi mm. so yeah. you know you can't just I feel like as an out you know as a as a, a person that was going through AA who was recovering that could have hurt her sobriety as well mm. something like that but it, it was liable mm. so he, he actually settled for liable okay also in 1991, we saw another solo project called Plains Music, which was based on Native American music by Manfred Manser, the band. <laughs> All right, there it is, ladies and gentlemen. The federally mandated Manfred Man's Earth Band reference of the podcast has been satisfied. Wow, you're not going in the oh, creepy wow. direction. That's new. That was more. That was more. I it, thought maybe that would be creepy, but in a different way. Uh, you need to get a little bit more like Tiny Tim to do that. Is it? <laughs> Tiptoe through the doo-doo. Yeah. 
If you could learn the harmonica and ukulele, that'd be great. That'd be awesome. Simultaneously <laughs> playing at the same time. Yeah. 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 In 1992, Dusty signed a contract with Sony, uh, Sony slash Columbia Records. And in 1994, from January 31st to early April, she was recording a new album in Nashville. So it seems like she's still she's still living in Europe and coming over to produce her music. So it seems like nothing really happened that was of note in 1993. And I'm referring to both the book, The Complete Dusty Springfield, and the biography of Dusty Springfield. Dancing with Demons, they just skip right over 1993 and go straight to 1994. And that's okay because I don't think the year 1993 actually happened. Do you remember anything other than Jurassic Park? I graduated from high school that year. So, yeah. <laughs> and I was going, I wouldn't have gone into high school until the next year. Correct. So, yeah. so, the first inkling that Dusty might be seriously ill came in 1994. She was at the studio. Despite the success of Reputation, the Nashville sessions were not going well. Dusty would usually turn up at four o'clock in the afternoon and work until the night, like through the night. But as so often happened these days, her voice would give up on her. And, and this is actually something that is not entirely her fault. She wasn't able to finish that session in a, an appropriate amount of time because Na Nashville actually had the worst ice storm that it had ever had in decades to the point where they had lost power for like five or six days. And one of the studio musicians came back with the sad news that his entire tank of tropical fish had frozen into a solid block of ice. I, I remember this. There was a, a, just a, a winter storm that hit the entire Eastern seaboard. That was just crazy. All the way down in North Carolina, there was like two feet of snow. What, what year was this? 93. Yeah. Yeah. 93, um, okay, I was going to say it was sometime around this or, or around this era where there was a horrific ice storm and it, and it, yeah, there were a lot of problems like that. But I remember I, I was watching the ACC basketball tournament and the power went out in the Charlotte Coliseum <laughs> because of this. Yeah. Like, like somebody from Wake Forest is like bringing the ball down the court and all of a sudden it's just dark, just no light. No power, no electricity. Wow. Isn't that what happened to uh, the Louisiana, the, the Superdome, that one year that the, the Super Bowl was being played, and like all of a sudden, like no power? Something like that. Yeah. I, I, that was not, not, it wasn't that year, but yeah, very similar. Yeah. It's the same thing. You're just like watching it yeah. all of a sudden, like, oh, that, that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, that was the, the Ravens uh, Niners Super Bowl, the, the Harbowl. I did love the meme that came out after that. And you just said Peyton's Revenge, and it's him like laughing <laughs> while plug. holding a plug. That was really funny. <laughs> so they had no power, they had no heat. So finally, they got the power back on, and the Nashville sessions had turned from six weeks to 12 weeks. Oh, wow. Her voice was still sore, and something was up, but she was putting up, she, she just was like, guys, my voice isn't great because of the cold weather. Finally, her voice went out completely. Her old friend, Pat, dragged her to the doctor, and basically all he said was, please, as soon as you get home, please go to a real doctor, get it checked out. Dusty came back uh, to, she went back to her home, and she had only been home for like four days when she discovered a lump in her breast. And she rang Vicky, who was in London, who let it slip in the middle of a phone conversation. Like, she didn't even come out and say, Vicky, I have something to tell you. She was just like, oh yeah, I found a lump. And Dusty was you know, the kind of person who's so, so blasé about it. And Vicky was like, oh my God, please, can we please take you to the doctor? 
And she's like, no, I don't have a doctor. You know, I don't go to doctors. I don't deal with doctors. Oh, wow. So Vicki hung up on her, called her doctor and arranged an appointment and called Dusty back. And she was like, you're going. And Dusty was like, I don't have time for this. I've got a ton of stuff to do. But here's the thing. Vicki rarely lost her temper. Dusty saw it that day. Mm. And so she was like, okay, anything that's pushing my friend who very rarely goes off the rails, maybe I should do this. Maybe I should go to the doctor. So Vicki actually told her, and this is a little ears warning, guys, because I'm going to quote something. So I think if you, if you want to skip the, this part, the little ears should uh, be closed up. In her own words, Vicky flat out told Dusty to shut the fuck up. And that rattled Dusty so much, she was like, okay. The one thing other than Vicky's temper that made Dusty go to the doctor was that the doctor was actually a woman. And that mm -hmm. seemed to make a difference to Dusty. So whatever it takes. So she went to the doctor and immediately they sent her over to the Royal Marsden Hospital to make an appointment. She got a biopsy and Dusty knew that the Royal Marsden was like the best cancer hospital in London. And when Dusty came out of the biopsy, she was like, does it look good? And the pair were trying to encourage her. And the fact is they were, they were pretty damn worried. Okay. They were, they were like, you know what, let's just wait and see. And, and let's find out what the specialist says. In the meantime, while the biopsy was being sent off for testing, Dusty went back into the studio and finished off her side of a duet with Daryl Hall and Diane Warren. Uh, whatever would I be for the film while you were sleeping? Yeah. A few days later, the, the Marsden Hospital confirmed what the doctors had suspected. The lump was not benign and Dusty had cancer. Mm -hmm. The specialist suggested a course of chemotherapy followed by surgery to remove the lump and any other tissues that they were worried about. And then she would have radiotherapy. Of course, Dusty was worried. She was severely depressed. Everything that she was working on so hard for seemed to be falling away again. Her work with the Pet Shop Boys, her own solo success, and then just just now, Quentin Tarantino had used her son of a preacher man for the cult film of oh, right. Pulp Fiction. So there was like the surge of new people, a fresh batch of fans that wanted to know all about her. Leslie, who was like, for her, it was like God kicking her just one more time. When her brother found out, he reached out to her. And remember I said, Tom's not really in the picture. Yeah. Yeah, they hadn't had any contact really over 20 years. Yeah, he hasn't been mentioned at all. Yeah. Finding out about his sister's illness, it seems like he wanted to reach out, but like right. it, he had separated himself for such a long time. Oh, wow. And one day she was driving in Los Angeles. This is just one of those things like, okay, so Dusty would love, like one of her perfect days would be to go to Heathrow Airport and park, grab a snack and just watch the planes take off. Hmm. And so she wanted to, to do that. So she drove down to LAX to watch the planes <laughs> and then go driving through the mountains. So Helen was driving Dusty and Dusty was in the passenger seat. And all of a sudden they were just, I don't, it seems like they were parked on a side street. The door flew open. A man's arm went around her neck and started pulling Dusty out of the passenger seat. What the? Dusty was fighting him off and Helen jumped out of the car and started screaming at him. Other cars started pulling up behind the man and he let go and just took off with her bag. She took this in stride because she didn't, he didn't get anything worthwhile because all of her medication was under the seat. And the only thing in that bag was a ton of makeup. <laughs> so no harm done. And this is at a random, on a random street? Random street. Just, wow. But 
By the end of 1995, Dusty had finished her treatment at the Marsden. Although she thought that, although she was really tired from the effects of radio and chemotherapy, she and Vicky had given Columbia the go-ahead to put out a very fine love. Now, the reason why I'm pointing this out is she had done a very fine love and Columbia was really hesitant to put it out because of her illness. Because mm-hmm. they're like, well, she can't really promote it. She can't, she can't do anything that will push sales. Like if we put this out, there will be like almost no fanfare. She they're can't flat, even, yeah. yeah. And so they went out and they, they gave the go ahead to put out a very fine love. Springfield's cancer went into remission. And in June, 1995, a, a very fine love was released and it made little impact on the U.S. charts. But it did reach number 43 on the British charts. The title got the best critical reception. It was the blue-tinged closing track, Where is a Woman to Go?, written by Jerry Gillespie and Katie Oslin, originally recorded by Dottie West in 1984, which actually featured guest vocals by Katie, who had recorded the song herself in 1988, and Mary Chapin Carpenter. While promoting the album in the UK, the TV show later with Jules Holland, Springfield performed the track live, backed by Sinead O'Connor and Allison Moyette. Hmm. One, wow. track, one track that, from the that, album. That, that's, that's quite an eclectic group. Yes, right there. Allison Moyette, Dusty Springfield, and Sinead O'Connor. Yeah. One track from the album, Wherever Would I Be, is a Diane Warren pin duet with Daryl Hall. And that was the song that was featured in While You Were Sleeping. And that was a minor heart chart hit in Britain, along with... <laughs> Will Jennings' gospel-flavored Roll Away. That is the last single of her lifetime. And this is 94, 95? Yeah, we're we're skipping a little ahead. I got you. Yeah, so Dusty had seemed to have beaten breast cancer, but she had a cough before she went on a trip to Ireland. And it had gotten worse during this trip, and there was a strange pain in her collarbone. Helen thought, and she's on the trip to Ireland with, with her friend Helen. Helen thought Dusty had no idea that she might be ill, and then approached her saying that, you know, the, there's an epidemic of pneumonia going around, so it might be a good idea just to have, like, your lungs checked. And Dusty was like, I've had enough of that. I'm well now. Still worried, Helen confided a friend and they concocted a plan that her friend Anne-Marie would say that she was having to take her daughter to the doctors. And since the, the daughter loved Dusty, maybe she could go along with them. And then Helen could get the doctors to x-ray Dusty. Uh, it was highly unlikely that she would be, that she would fall for this, but I don't know if she just gave up or if she was like, now nah, maybe this is a good idea. I should get it checked out. Or if like, They were just like, wow, you're standing here. Why don't we just, for funsies, x-ray you? Well, either way, the plan succeeded. The x-rays were sent directly from Ireland to the Marsden. The news came back, and it was bad. The cancer was not only back, but it had gone to Dusty's bones. Oh, Oh, man. It took her friends six long months in 1998 to convince Dusty to make a will. If anything had brought Dusty to tears over the last few years, it was concern over the fate of her cat. Uh, when she first had the news from the Marson, she was said to have gone back to her cat, Nicholas, and just hugged him. Sitting in the hallway, she would wail. She would cry. Who is going to look after you when I'm gone? In truth, Nicholas was an adorable kitten and a great big ball of fluff, and he had mm-hmm. just grown into being a complete jerk. He's an unfriendly, prickly cat that wouldn't let anyone but Dusty pick him up. <laughs> the only person that could get within a few feet of him was her friend Lee, and that would be Chicken Lee, the one that was tossing the bones into the pool, I do believe. Oh, yeah, the chicken pool. Chicken pool. Uh, And then she would actually leave Nicholas to Lee. By 
January of uh, 1999, word came through that Dusty was to be given a place in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in the middle of March that year. Dusty had smiled when Vicky told her, finally, America was going to recognize her. And, and, and yet another person who had to wait entirely too long to be inducted. Accurate. Because she, because she would have been eligible, should have been eligible sometime in the 80s, I'm thinking. Yeah, way overdue. Yeah. Yeah, very overdue. Yeah. The Hall of Fame in Cleveland, Ohio, started in 1986 and was supposed to be a place for a permanent exhibition for rock pioneers. It was artists who had been involved with music for 25 years and who had made what was judged to be a remarkable contribution to their art. Dusty would be joining a list of greats that included Rolling Stones, The Beatles, Otis Redding, and Stevie Wonder. People that she had not only like worked with, met with, collaborated with, and admired. And in some cases, gave them their break <laughs> by bringing them onto her show. Dusty knew no matter what else happened, with this induction, she would always have a place in history. And at the event, it would be Elton John who would accept the award on Dusty's behalf at the ceremony at the Waldorf Astoria in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And that January, Dusty was also given another honor, which was she made the list of honors for the Order of the British Empire. Now, that list is drawn up annually by the Queen herself. Oh, wow. And the government of the day, you know, Dusty was pleased to be getting all that recognition, but after so many years of ups and downs, she was cynical enough to think like, they're honoring me because I have cancer. I have a terminal illness. Now they're like, give her all the stuff. So because she was in the hospital and so incredibly ill, Vicky rang up St. James Place and talked to them about how she could get her medal because she was too sick to come be in front of the the queen for that long. Mm -hmm. She was told that there three different things could be organized. The first was they could arrange a wheelchair and special access to the palace so that she could receive the award directly from the queen. Uh, she could also have, they, they could send an official and he could bestow it on her in the hospital. A representative, yeah. Yeah, and the third was that she could have a friend go pick it up and bring it back to her. And in the end, Dusty had Vicky pick it up. Mm. And when she saw it, it came in like a little tiny case and she... She's very proud of it, but 11 days shy of her induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and two months after being made an officer of the Order of the British Empire by Queen Elizabeth II, pop singer Dusty Springfield succumbed to breast cancer March 2nd at her home. She was only 59. Jeez. Springfield's funeral services were attended by hundreds of fans and people from the music industry, including Elvis Costello, Lulu, and the Pet Shop Boys. It was a Catholic funeral which took place at the Church of St. Mary the Virgin in Henley-on-Thames, where Springfield had lived during her last few years. A marker dedicated to her memory was placed in the church graveyard. In accordance with Springfield's wishes, she was cremated, and some of her ashes were buried at Henley, while the rest were scattered by her brother, Tom Springfield, at the, the Cliffs of Moor in Ireland. Elton John had sent a massive bouquet of flowers. The card simply read, to the greatest, love Elton and David. And I think we can agree she was one of the greats. And that's where we end. Man. Wow. Yeah. A lot to absorb there it over the course of four, you know, episodes. But um, I tell you, the one thing that always sticks out, you know, because we, we've had this with a couple of people we've covered where their later life gets a little weird. Um, they maybe aren't acting like themselves because of some 
substances that they've fallen under the influence of um, and stuff. But I, I think if you want to get an essence of who she was as a person, we can go back to, I think it was part one or part two, where um, she had a no apartheid clause in her contracts, um, was, I, I think, <laughs> I think was asked to leave South Africa because she, she refused to perform in front of a segregated audience yep. and things like that. I think that probably shows you where her heart was and what kind of person she was. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, you get some of the weird stuff later where you have little people in gold lame on, on rollerblades or whatever that's going on uh, later in her career and stuff. But I think you, you boil it down to the essence. I think that shows you what kind of person she was um, who had a very strong sense of, and a, and a keen good sense of what was right and what was wrong. She was willing to stand up for it, even if it meant I'm in a foreign country. I have strange officials probably with guns coming into my hotel room telling me I have, I'm, I'm being taken to a, an airport and I'm being removed from the country. I, you know, she had a strong sense of what was right and wrong, and she was willing to stand up and fight for it, even under scary circumstances. And then listen to some of those early records. Just listen to the voice, the talent, and, and the fact that she was willing in the 1960s to, hey, I have a TV show. What I'm going to do is bring on some Black artists from America that no one over here has heard of and give them an opportunity that, frankly, at the time, they're not really even being given in their own country. Uh, you, you know what I mean? I think you start to see the, the heart that she had and the kind of person she was. And then, you know, things get strange as you go along when other things, drugs and alcohol get involved. But I think what you, if you distill it, what you have is a really good person and a really talented person who I'm glad got the recognition she deserved toward the end of her life. Yeah. And your, your final thoughts. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of the, the definition of tragedy is where the, we want these people to get there. We want them to succeed. We want them to have it. And then circumstances just don't allow it until after they pass. Um, and, you know, I, I think, uh, when you look at all the stuff that we've talked about, the, first of all, the thing that sticks out to me, in addition to the stuff TJ, you mentioned is she was the first woman on top of the pops. Yep. Ever, ever, ever. I mean, again, setting these trends and, and going where no one else was going. And, and we, we took, we hear about how meticulous she was in the studio and how she had these bouts with depression and when she couldn't perform and be that person, it's, I think it just shows you what a dedicated artist she was. I mean, this is a singer singer. Yes. She was, you know, meticulous in the studio because she was hearing things that nobody else could hear. You know, she was so dedicated to what she was doing that by the end, we wanted to see her get the do. And therein lies the tragedy, you know? And, and I think that's one of the reasons we do this podcast. We're going to be covering, you know, a lot of artists that fit this category where they were almost there. They didn't see it in their lifetime. But the music they leave behind is how they get there. And now she's obviously in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She's revered in, you know, both the United States and Britain. She's a musical icon. Icon. Not, and and yeah. Australia. And Australia, yeah. And, and not just, yeah, a musical icon. Not just someone who sang, not just someone who wrote songs, an icon. And I think, you know, that's part of why we do this is to, to help get that out there for these people that may not have seen it while they were alive. Uh, yeah, and I, I think that the the approach that I had with this this particular series, like this this year that we're having, these heavy hitters, these people that we hadn't gotten a chance to cover that I wanted to take more time out. The thing with Dusty is there's not a lot out there. Like I, I've heard rustlings and it might've already come out, but it wasn't a big thing was there's going to be a, a, a biopic about her. Mm. 
and I don't ever know if that even got made. Like there, there was, you know, the Australian equivalent of a Broadway show. There, there are these little tiny inklings of like, let's get her story out there. But I think there, I could find maybe four books on her. I could find a couple documentaries on uh, YouTube and I could find a couple of her performances. Well, there's that, that's actually what there's the most plentiful of is perform live performances. The thing was, there's not one thing that you can point to and go, that's a great place to find out all you can about Dusty. Right. And I wanted to change that with this podcast and put as much information as I possibly could. And, now, and, and you did a very good job. And I want to give people a little tiny bit of inside baseball here. Something they wouldn't otherwise know. When we started this, you were reading, I think, a couple of books and you were looking for documentaries and stuff. And before we started recording, you're like, oh, well, yeah, this will probably be two parts. And then it became three parts and then it became four parts, not because you're long winded or don't know when to stop. <laughs> No, that's because, but, but because, but because you started reading, you're like, oh, wow, there's so much more there than you even knew than most people do. Because I, I have to be honest with you, I'm, I'm, I was familiar with, you know, some of her music and, you know, a few aspects of her life. But as you started laying this out, I'm like, oh, my Lord, what a fascinating human being she was. And, and I think, I think maybe you discovered that as you started finding out more about her and you're like, and then there's no way in hell I'm doing two parts on her. This is going to be more than yeah. that because there's so much great stuff. There. Yeah. But she's an icon. She is a trailblazer. She's a pioneer. She was someone who was not afraid to buck the system of just like the circuit and, you know, doing these hotels and things. And she was like, this isn't who I am. And she kind of burned bridges and burned through management and things like that to, to finally land on Vicky being her manager, someone who was her friend and her manager also turned out to be the biographer who wrote mm. the book along with um, Penny Valentine. So if you're interested in finding out all the little stuff that I couldn't put in this, the book that I read was the authorized biography of Dusty Springfield, Dancing with Demons by Penny Valentine and Vicki Wickham. And Vicki was one of her best friends. So I'm going to trust that bio, but that biography. The other one that I read was The Complete Dusty Springfield by Paul Howes. And he breaks down every song she recorded, where you can find it. She did a time, he, uh, he had done a timeline of like her appearances and uh, things that she had produced, her discographies, all that. So it is a pretty hefty book if you want to know a little bit more about the technical aspects of her. There is a documentary just called the Dusty Springfield documentary, but there's tons of performances. And please, guys, I implore you, go out and listen to more of her stuff. She was an incredible talent, and I feel like I want the world to know so much more about her. She was incredible in her times. And you can look at her and go, yeah, she had some problems, but in the end, she was so incredibly talented. And she put her, she stuck her neck out for people a lot of times. And yeah, she had the, the she, she, not to minimize this at all, but she had the issues with the self-harm and the drugs. But it seemed like toward the end, she was able to overcome that and become truly happy. And so I just, I want to leave Dusty in that happy place. So please, I implore you, please go, go listen to more Dusty Springfield music. Please read these books. I want someone to write a, a, a 700 page novel on this woman. Mm -hmm. I want a documentary, a full-fledged documentary about her warts and all. I want a feature film 
you know, showing me the Bohemian Rhapsody side of Dusty. I want all these things for her because she was so incredible. And in the end, I truly do love her. And I came out with a completely different view of Dusty rather than just son of a preacher man. Mm. So I'm going to turn it over to Mr. Hickey for our social stuff. But I first of all want to thank you guys so much for tuning in for these uh, four parts of Dusty Springfield. Now, next week we'll be starting a new series. My big brother T, do you <laughs> care to talk about that? Absolutely. We will be jumping feet first into the life, times, music, and legacy of the late great Thomas Earl Petty. Mm-hmm. Cannot wait. I, I, I think most of you probably know him as Tom. <laughs> uh, but I'm gonna. But I want one little um, warning before we before we proceed and before you jump on that next week. I am totally gonna Quentin Tarantino, Pulp Fiction that mofo. It's <laughs> almost every ep- almost every series we do, and it's understandable because we're telling a life story. We start at the beginning and we end at the end, and that's not how I'm going to approach uh, Tom. And that's all I'll say. Fair yeah. enough. All right. It's gonna be some good stuff, Mister Thrill. Okay. So as we mentioned earlier, one of the things we enjoy doing on this podcast is sharing with you the life, the works of these artists, and you can be part of that. Help us tell their stories. You can participate as a Patreon. You it's, can go to it's Patreon. Mainly, it's mainly so I can buy books. Uh, well, either way, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's helping us tell this story. And please feel free to jump in. You can become a Patreon at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can join us in the conversation on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Twitter is rock and roll heaven LT. Our Instagram is rock and roll heaven LT. Our Facebook is rock and roll heaven pod. Still not saying our website, our direct email. If you want to get in contact with us, maybe you have an artist in mind. Maybe there's something you want to hear more about. Maybe you just want to say, hey, I really thought this was interesting. You can drop us a line at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. Rock and Roll Heaven is, of course, a Pantheon podcast. So thank you to the Pantheon Network. And you can find us and other great podcasts that cover music at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Before we close out, I want to do a special tribute. And thanks to LD here, who did the research, who made this happen. You had so little to mine on this that what you pull together is a masterpiece on a spectacular musician. So first credit to LD here. Oh, thank you. Yes. Very, yes. Very excellent job. And um, we, we've actually gotten a little feedback on this one. Uh, I saw we had a comment on Facebook the other day and so it sounded like somebody was really, really digging your series. Really? I didn't see that. Ooh. And um, we've also made some new friends in the podcasting community, which is cool. Yeah. That is, yes. Who, whom will be, uh, um maybe we'll save that for next week but uh, we've, we've made some new friends and we're probably going to be on their podcast and we're looking forward to it absolutely yep 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 uh from all of us here at rock and roll heaven all you guys out there thank you for joining us for this ride i really enjoyed it and uh i guess i will see you guys next week travis do you have something you'd like to say to the <laughs> audience bye everybody all right mr will thanks everyone see you next time all right, so we will catch up with Tom Petty starting next week. Now, my final song is not what you think I would choose. It is not something from her later in life, hmm. you know, toward the end where she was doing like a very fun love or a very fine love or anything like that. It's actually a song written by Randy Newman way back in 1969 for the and, album. And, and, 
and good grief, we're going to talk about him in our next episode. <laughs> That's so strange. Really? Yes. Ram oh. Nash, Randy Newman. <laughs> yes. And Manfred Man's Earth Man. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> so this was a song that was written by Randy Newman. Apparently we're going to cover him next week. And it was done way back in 1969 for the album Dusty in Memphis. Here is the song to close out this series. It is Dusty Springfield, Just One More Smile. Can I cry a little bit? There's nobody to notice it. Can I cry if I want to? No one Why can't I pretend that you love me again? All I had has been taken from me. Now I cry tears that never become me. Just one smile, pain's forgiven. Just one kiss, the hurt's all. to achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, 
and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.